0: Hey everyone. What you're about to hear was originally an exclusive episode for our Patreon subscribers. Every once in a while, we will unlock one of these episodes to give you a taste of the content we're doing for patrons. If you like this one, go to patreon.com/podsidepicnic and subscribe. That's patreon.com/podsidepicnic. Thanks. I'll be back. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Today, I am not here with uh, my dear co-host. I know you're very sad about that. First time flying somewhat solo, although we have a special guest. He is a writer and a podcaster, and you may know him from Twitter, Rob Rousseau, joining us from Canada. Thanks for coming on,
1: man. Thanks for having me.
0: Hello. Yeah. Hey. Hey. It's And, uh, folks, we're discussing a movie that probably doesn't need a ton of introduction. Um, (laughs) It's uh, a true classic of sci-fi blockbuster-age. It's an 80s classic. It's a classic on so many different levels. That movie is the original Terminator. Um, And, you know, if you don't know what that's about, (laughs) I don't know how you find your way to the show or are able to use the internet. But... uh, (laughs) You know, it's it's Arnold Schwarzenegger goes back in time on behalf of the machines that are trying to exterminate humanity in the future, and he has to kill Sarah Connor, who's going to have the, the son that will um, lead the humans to fight and eventually overthrow the machines. And uh, it's, yeah, this is one of the most iconic Schwarzenegger roles. But before I start monologuing about stuff you already know, um, Rob... I want to ask you, you know, we talked about having you on the show and you picked the Terminator movies and I will tell everyone, I'm sorry, I, you wanted Terminator 2 and I said, let's do Terminator 1 because I'd have to rewatch them both. And this is at least like starting at the beginning. Um, Why did you pick the Terminator movies?
1: Well, definitely um, with T2, especially this is like I saw that at a very, I saw that, I saw before, I saw that before I saw the original one. So, and it was a very kind of like formative age for me. Like I saw that in the, in the theater in 1992, I was like nine years old. Uh, so you can, it just did a number on my brain. Right. And it, I really got pulled into that universe and um, it ended up going back later and discovering the, the first one. And it's just, I mean, it's just such a great example of, uh, of sci-fi blockbuster films. And, um, you know, you talked about, I listened back to your episode with Will Meneker talking about aliens. And I think a lot of what he said was what pulled me into this as well. That was another one of my favorites, but the production design, uh, the, the sort of glimpses at this future world that, that James Cameron kind of doles out throughout the movie. Um, it really just pulls you into this universe and makes you so kind of, it made me so fascinated about, about the, you know, how, what, about this universe and about discovering everything I could about it. Um, so that, that's really the reason that I wanted to talk about. It. I I mean, I picked T2 just because it's, I think it's possibly more of an iconic movie. It's kind of a, more of a, a true blockbuster, but I'm also really happy to talk about this one as well, because this is a really, a, you know, just a complete classic of the genre.
0: We can definitely discuss both. I mean, the one that I happened to rewatch, uh, was T1, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think they should be discussed in tandem. They're both like great and different roles, uh for Arnold Schwarzenegger, among other things, and there are different eras. I mean, I you, you had something immediately that like I want to talk about, which is this is a movie that is about an hour and 40 minutes or so. It's under two hours, and it has the confidence and the creativity, as you said, to give you glimpses into this future world and to flesh out um, this whole elaborate, uh, not just storyline, but universe uh, in under two hours. And it's, it does something, something that I watch a lot for in movies, um, for any story, but especially movies is like, where do they give their audience a lot of credit and where do they not? And, you know, it, as a typical of blockbusters, there's many like, sort of like <laughs> familiar beats that are emotionally manipulative, uh, that have been longstanding, uh, Long-standing techniques in movies in particular, but I think w- where this movie does give the audience a lot of credit is our ability to sort of process this complex world where we're not even going to see John Connor, who is this huge figure looming over the movie. We're not going to see John Connor at all, uh, even as we're being given this whole narrative universe. I mean, did you find that as interesting as I do?
1: Absolutely. And I think this this speaks to how great of a screenwriter James Cameron is. I think he's a really, really underrated screenwriter. Uh, and this is, I think... This is one of the main reasons why this movie works so well. I mean, with the concept and the story, there's no reason why this shouldn't have been just complete schlock that was just immediately forgotten. Right. Um, But the reason it isn't is because of how expertly crafted it is, both on the page and then I think in the actual movie, the production design and the casting, the score and how that all comes together. But I mean, it starts on the page And, uh, I think what you said is exactly right. That, um, when it comes to doling out information about the kind of wacky, uh, universe that they're, that they're, uh, putting out there, uh, it's done in a really, uh, in a really creative way. I think like there's like, there's a couple of scenes of exposition, but it doesn't feel like it's tacked on or doesn't feel like it's forced or anything's being spoon fed to you. Um, and as you, like as like as you pointed out too, it's like a just over a tight ninety. It's incredibly propulsive. Uh, there's not like any wasted dialogue or wasted scenes. It's really just like it bring It's a ride. It brings you on this ride uh, right from the early moments of the movie uh, all the way through the very end.
0: Yeah, and it somehow maintains that momentum despite. Uh, fairly extensive and detailed flashbacks or I guess flash flash forward flashbacks whatever we're calling them of the the future that Kyle Reese has uh, come to us from and that like I agree with you completely like this is sort of a masterclass class in uh, genre screenwriting in a way that isn't done anymore because so much like genre screenwriting especially at the level of blockbusters is like two and a half hours two hours 15 minutes three over three hours the sprawling yeah. Marvel movies yeah, and that's a real shame. I think.
1: I think so. Yeah, there's it's kind of a lost art, um, and uh, that yeah, that's one of the reasons that I think this is so that this is so great.
0: Um, so like, I, I'm curious now. So you said that you saw Terminator Two at a formative age. I had to circle back to this one. Like, under what circumstances did you kind of circle back to it?
1: Um, I think just because I became so I was I had my mind blown so much by T2 seeing that and just like, you know, thinking about that, that I, then I ended up like renting it on VHS probably later that summer to, to watch it. And just, you know, watching them too watching them now too. It's interesting because, you know, you're talking about blockbuster and how I think this, the original Terminator kind of became that iconic blockbuster, but it's almost by accident. Uh, T2 is really like designed to be that it's got that big budget. You can see every dollar of the budget on the screen Uh, it's, it's designed, even though it's, it's violent and it's R rated, it's still designed to appeal to, I think a broad range of people. Like I said, I was just a kid when I watched this, but it doesn't pander to kids at all. It's, it's, you know, it's scary and violent and, and bloody. Um, but when you look at, uh, Terminator one, uh, it's really a different feel to that. And I think it became a blockbuster because, because of how skillfully it was made, like written and, and directed. Um, but it also like it doesn't need it's not necessarily made like that. Like to me, it's almost it's almost like a horror movie. And uh this is not really discussed, I think, when you talk about it. Like maybe you might call it a thriller or a sci-fi a sci-fi thriller or whatever, but it's very scary. Uh it's really a lot like it follows, actually, when you think about it. Um just the idea of this yeah. yeah, just the idea of this like unstoppable monster. Um And Schwarzenegger, you know, in 1983, 84 was just this absolute freak of nature. So uh, imposing and terrifying. Uh, The idea of this person just like stalking you forever uh, and there's nothing you can really do to slow him down or stop him. uh, No matter what, you know, what you might do, he's just going to continue coming until he murders you. That's his whole reason for being that there's that whole spiel that that Kyle Reese gives. Eventually, you know, he doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear like that's fucking terrifying. And um, that's something that I think there's elements of that in the other one, but to me, uh, um, that's one of the reasons that I think this is the, what what sets the original apart is that it's really got this element of of terror that's that's motivating the whole thing. It's it's quite scary, um, and that's yeah, that's that's totally one thing that I think sets it apart. I don't think it necessarily had to be a big blockbuster. It just became that because of how how expertly it was put together.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that you've touched on something that we've gotten into a little bit. Like, so far, Pete and I have talked about a bunch of movies from the same era, because this has, like, 84, I think. And yeah. oddly enough, or not, I mean, what's interesting is that a lot of um, the sci-fi, both on screen and in book form, that remains most influential came out in the early to mid-80s. You have everything. I guess Alien was right at the turn of there. Yeah. Um, but Neuromancer and Blade Runner were coming out around exactly the same time, which is interesting, and, and this is not something that's influenced by those founding cyberpunk texts, and yet it still shares um some of their ideas about the aesthetic of the future of the sort of grimy, slummy future where technology has advanced and human civilization has uh decayed. Um and just the basic aesthetic that this movie kind of even makes fun of itself early on when you have like you start with the glimpse into the apocalyptic, you know, machines rolling over skulls, future of L.A., and then it jumps to what is the present day for this movie, the early 80s, and it's, like, this imposing shot of this, you know, machinery working against a dark sky, and then you find out it's a garbage truck. Uh, yeah. So the movie makes fun of itself at times, too. But but I'm rambling a little bit here, but, like, a lot of it's from that era, and one of the defining things about those movies from that era that we've encountered is a lot of them are, there were still a lot of, like, movies that were... um. Schlock is definitely one word you could use. Like There was a lot of room out there for sci-fi in particular that was going to be fairly cheaply done, uh, very action-driven, no one was going to take it seriously. And then some movies kind of snuck through there and have become really canonical that were made that way, like The Thing being a fantastic example, for instance. Um, yeah. And this one is kind of another example. It's even more unlikely than The Thing in some ways because it's so it's so straightforwardly at some level a like, corny action epic. Um, so what are like... Aside from the things we've already discussed, like what are some of the things specifically that really stick with you of this movie that make you just think like, yeah, this is sort of an enduring quality movie in spite of being in this uh, schlocky genre. Uh,
1: I just think it, it, it takes itself seriously, right? It's not there to, uh, to make a buck or to, you know, bring in a couple of like, fill some 3d multiplexes over the summer uh, and then, you know, move on. I, I think there's a real craft behind it. Like I was saying, like in the screenwriting, um, and this is to me this to me is like one of my I, I'll keep going back to this because I feel so strongly about it. This is like one of my all time favorite Hollywood screenplays like when i was uh when I was in San Diego a couple years back, I was in some some random bookstore in San Diego and I found this like old dog eared copy of the screenplay that I was I think from the from the USC library or something that I still have um, so I just think there's a craft there that's that's lacking from those other uh, some of like there's there's lots of, of this kind of stuff that was coming out at that time, but I think this is what sets James Cameron apart as a filmmaker, um, in that he's not he, you know he's not trying to be schlocky. he's taking it completely seriously, uh, playing it totally straight, and just all the things that need to come together like the casting obviously the score everything is is done so expertly that it ha- it takes on this iconic enduring quality. And you know, like Schwarzenegger, at that time, I think he had done you know, he had done Conan and a couple of things, but he wasn't this big, you know, uh huge Hollywood box office movie star yet. Uh, so you know, taking a chance on this, um, I also really like the the contrast in the the like Reese and the Terminator. you have the, you have Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, who's this, you know, incredibly imposing freak of nature, just look kind of physically like perfect looking. And then you have Reese that's like all scrawny and emaciated and scarred. Uh, And there's this real contrast set up between how these two are going to play out through us throughout the rest of the movie. But that's what I think it is. That's what sets it apart is. And that's what, that's why James Cameron is James Cameron is because he, he brought a level of filmmaking skill to this, that if it wasn't there, you know, if it was lacking, if it was an okay, fun action movie, but the script wasn't really not as good. Or if it had some cool special effects, but it's cheesy, hammy acting, uh, it just wouldn't have worked. But you have this really expert level filmmaker who's really just never gotten an opportunity to to create something on this level before at this time. Um, and everything comes together perfectly, and that's why it's endured, and that's why the the universe has endured because it because he put this he he put this together so perfectly. That that it just captured people's imaginations.
0: I want to fast. That's all very well stated. I think I want to fasten on to something that you said about, um, well, the roles of Cameron and the extent to which Cam this this film takes itself seriously. And thinking about the concept of seriousness in James Cameron, because like we've talked about on this pod, we talked about sort of other Golden Age of James Cameron movies. The number one being Aliens, one of my favorite movies. Um, which, by the way, funny anecdote. I guess James Cameron they filmed aliens in Britain and uh, the studio, the sort of ordinary workers in the studio were like, not digging his work style, his yeah, sort of demanding them, yeah. American, yeah. yeah. And apparently <laughs> at one point he actually tried to show them Terminator to like be like, "Hey, look, guys, like I'm I'm impressive. Look what I did. This is cool." And they were just like, eh, <laughs> fuck off," <laughs> um, which I think is a great story. But uh, yeah. you know, like, I need my I need my he,
1: my my dedicated 15 minute tea break, and I don't care what you did before, but like give me my tea.
0: Right, it, which is which is funny <laughs> on so many different levels, and somehow aliens came together, and it's just this amazing movie in its own right. But like Cameron, what's interesting about Cameron is that yeah, he he takes himself seriously, Takes his work very seriously no matter what he's doing and that has paid huge dividends and a lot of things he's made and it also leads us to sort of present day Cameron where he's doing these really over the top melodramas uh, with a huge huge budget and like Alita Battle Angel which we famously panned on the show I shouldn't say famously we only have like a thousand listeners but you know anyway people <laughs> reference that as panning that um, and it's you know there's he, he he still exists as this big force in Hollywood who's trying to be an, ant, uh, an antidote to the sort of faceless Marvel machine, but his auteurism has sort of spun off into its own uh, corny realm. But before even getting to that, I want to go back to what you said about the film taking itself seriously because like this way this movie ends, I just noticed uh, watching it like, You know, she destroys, Sarah Connor destroys the Terminator after he's been stripped of his human veneer, after his flesh has been burned off. She destroys him by using an automated robotic factory against him. And it's one of those moments where you're just like, man, uh, you know, James Cameron is is really going all out here to make some kind of sort of. Unabomber point about how the rise of mechani- mechanization generally, uh, has, you know, will sort of lead blade to this moment. Uh, even as she's just doing a cool action movie thing of crushing him with an automated press. Um, <laughs> so that's like, a, you know, that's like, that's something you're taking, you know, you just taking sort of the... Uh, the semiotics and the uh, the philosophical thrust of your potentially shocky action movie, I think, rather seriously, but in a way that works in the course of a propulsive story, which I guess is probably the key, right?
1: Yeah, and and that's it's a, it's kind of a it's like a it's a visual metaphor, right? But it's not it's not exactly subtle. It's not like Kubrickian or anything. Uh, there's a couple of these throughout the movie, like the like you talked about the tire treads on the human skulls. Uh, one watching, watching this back that I noticed that I thought was really cool was there's this, this one shot where there's like a child's toy on the ground and then the Terminator's car rolls up and crushes it as he steps out. It's a little yeah, interesting visual <laughs> flourishes like that, but that's what I mean. It's not, it, they're not exactly subtle, uh, but it is bringing a level of like artistry to this thing that I don't think necessarily would have been there otherwise. Uh, but you mentioned the thing about the, uh, getting crushed at the factory at the end. And this is actually another thing with the screenplay that I find pretty interesting uh, which is that it sets up this perfect causal loop, uh, which is another thing that I think is cool about this movie. Uh, it could, it could have never had a sequel and it kind of, it tells this really interesting self-contained story uh, with these kind of time travel paradoxes uh, with Reese, of course, becoming the father of the guy that's going to send him back in time 40 years in the future. But also um, this is on something you only get from actually looking at the screenplay. Cause I don't think this is really, I think this is cut out of the actual movie, but in the screenplay, it makes clear that the factory at the end is Cyberdyne. It's the computer factory where they eventually create the Terminator. So ah, I was it's, wondering about it's, that. Yeah. It's kind of like a big budget kind of twilight zone episode. It's, it's setting up this caught this, this like a uh, temporal loop basically where the Terminator gets crushed there. And then eventually they find all this stuff. They create the, you know, they start creating uh, defense network stuff for NORAD, et cetera. And then it, it sets in, sets in motion this chain of events that leads to the future war that, you know, that, that leads to uh, the events of the movie happening. Uh, So that's something that, you know, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, a fun visual metaphor, but there's, there is something there too. That's like, that's setting up this, this kind of uh, time travel loop.
0: One thing you touched on so many things there that I appreciate. And one thing that you got me thinking about was, uh, when they have Reese, the, the police, the present day police have Reese captive and they're interrogating him and they think he's crazy and he's talking about how like, uh, the sort of chain of events that will lead to this um, and as he tells Sarah Connor, like it's because of a nuclear war. Like that's one of the things that really, that so, uh, this movie like, while tracking its own particular timeline that you're talking about, the temporal loop it sets up, it's, it's one thing about this movie that's so great is that it is a tour through 80s aesthetics and sensibilities on so many different levels. One of those is just, like, literally, especially early in the movie, there's a lot of, like, just people listening to, like, cassette Walkmans and, like, uh, boomboxes and stuff like that, and literally the first shootout takes place in... uh, you know, an eighties dance club in LA, like could, could not possibly be more like Reagan's America, mid eighties, uh, which also reminds me of
1: every single bar that I used to hang out with, every single bar that I used to hang out at in Montreal in the mid two thousands as well during the eighties revival here, (laughs) but sorry, go on. No, that's great. That's a great
0: anecdote. I mean, I think that like, there's so many points to be made there. Um, one that, that I'm fascinated onto is like, people of course now in 2019 are so obsessed with this discourse of the apocalypse and how the world is going to end not totally without cause i give i give you that but like um what this movie does is it, it dates itself in a very interesting way and it takes you back to the eighties, which now we associate with oddly, we associate with a kind of care, carefree living, which is strange because like, it was actually the extremely fraught hierarchical Reagan era. And also everyone was convinced the world was going to end in nuclear war, which this movie posits rather matter of factly will just happen. <laughs> right. Like it takes yeah. you back.
1: Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, and it's also, cause it's two things. Like, it's like, it's like, there's a fear of um automation and like american workers being displaced by automation and artificial intelligence and there's this fear of like impending nuclear war that was kind of animating everything so it's like two elements of of 80s paranoia based around um technology and the way technology can can destroy us that are that are kind of coming together at the same time
0: yeah that's a great point this is kind of the heyday of automation beginning to really do a number on manufacturing in wealthy countries and like that's it's that's, that's an interesting split to like To read the anxiety about the rise of the machines and AI, which has only increased in the intervening 35 years and is now a huge part of our everyday discourse like what is what does AI mean does does if you're me it's like does AI even exist or is that the wrong term because like we're so far from creating consciousness in machines um, like but automation broadly like this is a different
1: era of automation um, well now our AI just turns just turns the YouTube gaming fans into Nazis right <laughs> instead of launching Sinister, missiles at but... Russia and building cyborgs and stuff that's what they're focusing on
0: <laughs> right they build a different kind of cyborg Gamers, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, there we go.
0: <laughs> dun dun dun. Oh, this is also a great like early video game era movie because like the way that we see we see shots through the eyes of the Terminator through the eyes of Schwarzenegger, and it's like very early game interfaces, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's like a first person shooter,
0: exactly. Like the very early ones, especially. Um, I'm like I, I'm jumping all around here. This is where I have to make a confession that you're gonna kill me for. As I was watching this, I realized that I was experiencing strong Mandela effect because Rob. I was certain that I had seen this movie before, and I actually don't think that I had seen it before. Oh, really? Um, I think that I had all these. Me- I think I had all these memories of of Terminator Two and some of the the like later sequel in the two thousands. I think that I met- had those mashed up in my head and was like, yeah, I've seen the original. So thank you for making me do this <laughs> belatedly. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm
1: glad to. I'm as you can tell, I get I get very hyped to be able to to, to talk about this. I spent so much so many of like, my years of my childhood like thinking about this stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I can certainly see why this is. I can already tell. For instance, like the uh, the score in this movie is one that just kind of sinks in, and you're like, as you're listening to it, you're like, yes, this. There's a reason this score became iconic. It sort of perfectly captures this particular moment of thinking about the future and technology. Um, I, I want to ask you like what given that we all live or at least both of us live in the realm of Twitter uh quite a lot throughout the day and are, and are very hooked into online like to kind of expand on what we were talking about earlier like how do you think of how do you find yourself referring back to or thinking about the discourse around automation and AI uh 35 years ago versus now i mean that's kind of a nebulous question i guess i'm just saying like you know do you do you find this to be very dated or do you find it interesting how it, how neatly it connects or like, what do you think about all of that?
1: I don't know. I, like to me, I think this is, this is really a, a manifestation of the paranoia that people were feeling about it. And I think me, I mean, up until recently I had high hopes for, for things like AI and automation to deliver us like a better quality of life and to automate a lot of jobs out of existence that will kind of necessitate a new kind of economy to be built and I don't know what's right anymore. I mean, I think, I think a couple of years ago I had a lot of, I had hope that that's kind of where we were going into that kind of Star Trek future. Um, like, you know, we have, let's, if you say we have two possible outcomes of futures, like the Terminator future or the Star Trek future, I thought maybe we were heading toward more towards Star Trek. And now I'm kind of starting to backtrack again and thinking like, maybe these kind of paranoid, these kind of paranoid takes about, about the future of AI and automation and nuclear war were, uh, had it right the first time. And that maybe the, maybe the, you know, the positive future of that I was kind of hoping for was more of the pipe dream. Uh, I'm not sure. I would like to be wrong about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that the interesting thing is like I, I will, I will posit something that will connect this movie to what I see as a dominant strain in the culture right now, which is that like, Sarah Connor is an extremely literal chosen one in this story and she doesn't want to be. She's resistant to it because she's being plucked out of her relatively ordinary like 20-something life and being told, "Like uh, I'm from the future, come with me if you want to live. There's a cyborg monster hunting you and by the way, you have to get pregnant and have this son who will save us in the future, uh, <laughs> which is a lot to process, to <laughs> so yeah. the least. And she struggles with it and she does find her inner strength in every classic thing you'd expect. I do think that, like you said about like, loving to be wrong about like the really dark future or the world essentially ending or whatever. One of my pet hypotheses that I'm kind of stealing from Zizek, um, but just I think is, is an important thing to think about when you see people t- projecting the end of the world is that like on the one hand, she doesn't want to be that person. On the other hand, this is a process for her of like, for her having to become the savior and having to like at the end take off into the mountains with her pregnancy that she got uh, th- from knowing uh Kyle Reese and like that will become John Connor like and then she has to be the special one and like the fighter and learn to fight and organize all this stuff and she's been liberated from her job that we know sucks as a waitress uh, in LA in the 80s and like there, there the really interesting thing is the flip side of all of this, like doom and gloom about what, how terrible it might happen is it's also a fantasy for people, right? Like everybody has this fantasy of like, well, if the world did end and I had to be a marauding scavenger, at least I wouldn't, you know, have to go to work every day.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's also a very organic progression. I think for the character who starts off being very, very helpless. And, um, at the same time, it's not that just that she's rescued by this strong guy that helps her, but you know, At the end, you know, he he ends up dying and then she still has to rely on the kind of this new strength that she's had to find within herself in order to finally, you know, to to stop this thing that's coming to to me, coming after her. And then at the end of the movie, she's she's independent. She's kind of moving into this new future where she's she knows what she's doing. She's like you said, she's not just some like automaton or a, a waitress that everyone kind of yells at all day. Uh, and, uh, so that's, it's, it feels very organic.
0: Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Like, as you said, she's, she's a very put upon waitress who we see having a bad time at work. We also see her getting stood up for a date. Um, and that's why she ends up going to the movies, but, and that's how, sort of how she encounters shorts and anger and Reese and all this stuff. And like, you know, she goes, I, what I love about this. What I love about action movies. Somehow she goes from like a broke waitress who, was being held uh, as a person of interest in like a huge investigation by the LAPD. She goes like her life gets blown up. Everybody gets killed, including her mother. Um, you know, she's, we you know she's broke. And then somehow she goes from that after being like re encountering the police, she goes from that to having like this cool Jeep renegade and driving <laughs> out in the mountains. And I'm like, I'm not sure how that happened, but good for her. You
1: know? Yeah. Um, well, there's a couple of months in between there. She's got a baby bump going. So maybe she like read the anarchist cookbook and learned how to hotwire Jeeps and did some, Started doing some cool uh, anarchist training, like in the meantime.
0: Yeah, exactly right. She got she, to that uh, she encountered a badass DSA cell, and they taught her all. This- <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and by um, the way, like I, 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 we need to talk about also that the subplot in the middle of this movie, or kind of the beginning, the first like forty five minutes of this movie, um, or an hour or so of the two cops played by uh, I think Paul Winfield and Lance Henriksen, two really great character actors. Uh, and it's like, I, I find that so cool, this storyline because it kind of sets these characters up like they're important and you're, Oh, these could, you know, if you're kind of trying to predict the outcome of the movie, you know, these guys are going to kind of slowly figure out what's going on and they're going to help. And then just midway through the movie, they, 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 there's that incredible, uh, harrowing, uh, scene at the police station when he just shows up and just mows, down, mows down every single person in the police station, just slaughters everybody, uh, completely terrifying. And these guys just completely get gunned down and they're gone. And I find that such, that's such a really great flourish as well. Getting these, these really cool, like, uh, like actors to come in and do these, these, uh, side roles, um, which gives it a lot more weight, I think. And it, it, you like, it, it emphasizes how like unstoppable this, this antagonist is that you have these guys that are like, oh, these are important, surely. And they just like, they, they're like nothing. You just get, you know, walks right through them. Uh, and I thought that's, that's such a cool element it, that's kind of lacking in the, in the, in the, uh, the next one.
0: Well, yeah, that's a great observation. And, like, a movie from around the same time that we've talked about with Brian Quimby, uh, The Hidden, is analogous to this in that it's, like, it sets up this buddy cop thing um, with Kyle McLaughlin and I forget who the other actor is, but, like, they comic Lachlan is sort of an alien posing as a cop and they're hunting this other alien. And like, it's exactly what you said with, you'd expect in this case where the cops like are incredulous and they have to come around to it. And like, it's this whole saga and you think that's being set up. And I, I'm not so sure that I find it quite as satisfying that they just get like totally wiped out like that, but it definitely does do a good job of subverting expectations at the very least. Um, And so, yeah, I I did find that to be an interesting uh, sort of way of messing with things. And like, the, the I'm always looking at the way that state violence is portrayed in movies because like now so often you have overpowering state violence being portrayed as like a good thing, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know how, how that happened with Hollywood. A good question. It must have happened um, yeah. by accident. Mm. But um, you know, kind of post 9 11, especially that's been a big, big thing. This case, you have like the 80s action movies are so markedly different because instead of the sort of like. Uh, the sort of black body armor SWAT team, usually federal that like faceless sort of elite, uh, three letter agency thing that happens in, in contemporary movies. You have like sort of city cops with no body armor, always just getting mowed down in these early movies, which is like a huge contrast to the way that like the power of the state is often depicted later on. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and Hey, like this is actually something to really, it's important to bring up about T2 as well, which is, I think is like pretty crazy which is that the main villain in T2 is an LAPD officer. And there's a huge sequence later in the movie of like the, the Schwarzenegger and his sort of crew with Linda Hamilton and, and Edward Furlong. Uh, they have to like, like escape and the, the cops are the ones that are, you know, holding them in and they've got to like destroy this army of cops. And like, that's a pretty, like that's a fairly uh, brave decision in the storytelling decision in the early nineties at the height of like the LA riots and Rodney King and all this stuff to like explicitly portray LAPD cops as like the number one antagonist in the movie. And like, you know, throughout the movie, like it's kind of an obstacle that they have to get through. And I remember at the time when the T2 arcade game came out, there was a big outcry because there's whole sequences in the game where you just have to like mow down LAPD SWAT officers. Like it's like nothing. And that that to me is like, (laughs) that's one, that's one thing that's kind of interesting about James Cameron is that he, I find it his politics kind of hard to parse in that way. He doesn't really make it quite as easy as as like you're saying, where just de- depicting state power is kind of the be all and end all where uh, he, like, you know, with when it comes to aliens or when it comes to this or, or even with Avatar, he uh, later he, he kind of like fetishizes the weaponry and the machines of war and all this stuff. But he also demonizes it at the same time. There's kind of a mistrust of it and showing how these institutions can be corrupted and can be uh, violent and can be a negative thing. Um, which I think is a pretty interesting choice, uh, that again, this, this is something that James Cameron was bringing to the table that I think, you know, if Spielberg was making the same story, it would, he would end up doing a completely different or, or any other kind of blockbuster filmmaker wouldn't really go all in on kind of these kinds of vid- visual images of like these LAPD SWAT teams, you know, getting like completely gunned down by the heroes of the movie.
0: I completely agree. And it made, it made me think of a few things like, cause Cameron wrote. And directed this one and Aliens, the two that I have in my mind right now. And in this one, like you said, it's not the LAPD. um, They occupy a relatively neutral role because they they don't ever fully understand Kyle Reese's mission. Which, like, fair enough, they they wouldn't. He seems like a crazy man, but like they they just sort of get in the way of things and are finally sort of just like blown apart by. Uh, Schwarzenegger, and from that point forward, kind of irrelevant. But uh, the the script does point out very directly that, like, essentially, the military-industrial complex is responsible for all of this because they they tried to create this NORAD yeah. computer Skynet that destroyed everything, and that's like the the, the the finger pointing is very clear there. And I think Reese is pretty insistent about that when talking to the cops. So that part is clear when it comes to sort of the edicts of the state and sta- and legitimated state violence. And of course, Aliens is great because Aliens is about uh, you know a colonial marine. Military force and that works at the behest of a corporation. And it, c- it could hardly be more explicit about who the bad guy and the exploiter is here. Because, like, yes, the xenomorphs are bad, but none of this would be happening in the same way if Will and Dutani Corporation weren't pulling all these strings, both with its own employees and with uh, the so called colonial marine force. And so, yeah, I mean, Cameron, like, whatever his politics may be substantively, he's always shown a lot of. uh it, he shows a, a skepticism of a particular kind of capitalism, especially a kind of extractive capitalism and sort of violent imperialism. At least at that level, uh, he's very, very skeptical and, and very critical, I would say, um, in, in arguably a cartoonish way. But, of course, he makes genre blockbusters. So what can we really expect, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just like you said, after 9-11, you, just, you don't have these kinds of like uh, criticisms of state power of, or, or of imperialism being made in any of these movies really. Um, and that's, that's what, that's one of the things that sets these, these eighties movies apart. It's one of the things that sets James Cameron apart. Uh, and one of the things that get, you know, really made, pulled me into these movies, whether it was these, the Terminator movies or alien aliens or whatever. Um, it's just, it's, it's really a unique kind of storytelling, um, that he brings to the table.
0: Yeah. Although I, I will point out one, which could be a total rabbit hole for us, but like the one really interesting exception to like popular action blockbusters, uh, as far as making, um, sort of state violence, the enemy is the born identity series, which of course came out during the height of the Iraq war and stuff, which is a really interesting counterpoint yep. to, uh, to this whole attitude. But that's what that makes those movies so classic in one way, at least. Um, I, I kind of want to ask you like uh, I'm not saying that we're done discussing this movie by any means but I'm curious like what other really what other sort of blockbusters in general but especially anything with a sci-fi tinge has really influenced you.
1: Yeah, well we already talked about Aliens and for me it was it was really T2 and Aliens like when I was about 9 10 years old that really totally captured my imagination but um I can go on too cuz I think Schwarzenegger at this time I mean we we can make fun of his his kind of accent Or, or, you know, whatever. He's become kind of a goofy figure uh, because he was, you know, such an iconic figure for so long. But his run in the 80s and early 90s of of this, Terminator, uh, Total Recall, Predator, and Terminator 2, this is like one of the, to me, this is one of the best runs of any actor in the history of of Hollywood. And uh, so specifically, um, you know, Total Recall and Predator are two other that were hugely formative for me around this time both around the same kind of era and they both, it really speaks to Schwarzenegger's ability to like bring first, you know, bring a certain charisma to as a leading man. Cause you know, we can make fun of his acting, like I said, but he was bringing something to the table. He's a larger than life figure. Uh, and he's kind of creating inter- interesting characters, but behind the scenes also uh, the people he was choosing to work with, like he, he was really helping bring these movies together because he be, he be, had that kind of clout. So working with people like Paul Verhoeven or John McTiernan, on, on uh, total recall and predator. And to me, like this is some of the best science fiction that's ever been made. It's kind of the perfect confluence of like eighties Hollywood and these really terrific, uh, screenwriters and, and directors and, you know, this iconic action star all coming together at this perfect period. And so that to me is the, yeah, the, I, those two movies also for me, have just been like a huge influence. Um, and, and Schwarzenegger, I think, deserves a ton of credit, not just for starring in these movies and making them into blockbuster successes, but creatively behind the scenes, being a driving force and getting all these people together to to create this stuff.
0: So you're positing something very interesting, which I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, which is that we need to give Arnold Schwarzenegger credit for having good taste.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Interesting.
1: I mean, I like that. Yeah, no, not, like, I know. I, like, all. I just haven't heard that. Yeah, no, but if you look into the history of the, uh, like, what he was doing at this time. Like he, he was really, you know, and he wanted to work with Paul Verhoeven he wanted to like work with all these other people. And he had a really good sense of like what a good story was and what a good script was and who behind the scenes that there were the best people to make these things. Um, So yeah, I think he does, does deserve a lot of credit. Uh, obviously, you know, some of it is schlocky. We can make, make fun of a lot of it, but uh, you know, like I said, he, this is like one of the, greatest stretches in the history of Hollywood to me as an actor. Like I, I, you can make fun of his acting all you want, but probably there's four Schwarzenegger movies probably in my top 10 movies of all time. And I don't think I can say that about any, any other actor.
0: No, oh, that's, and you know what, dude, we might have to have you back on for some, some more Schwarzenegger in the future. That, that could be a, very, a big possibility because <laughs> you're making yeah. me want to rewatch some of these movies right now in this conversation. Um, yeah, like I, You know, we've talked a lot about this already, but I'm kind of curious to get more of your thoughts like aside from the fact that uh, there's now a faceless machinery that knows they can they can just extract uh, money from the Marvel franchise in particular in the way that you extract gold from a mine like it. what else, like, what are some of the things that you think have gone by the wayside in Hollywood blockbusters? And just why are blockbusters so much worse now? Because I feel like objectively they are. And watching the Terminator movies is a great example of, like, how much better they used to be.
1: Well, okay. I think there's a couple things. Um, Part of it is special effects, number one. So, like, let's take a look at T2, for example. That, to me, is a really, really great combination of practical effects and and some computer-generated stuff that was really like innovative and and had never been seen before. And it's mixed together in a real interesting way, but it doesn't feel like it's all shot on green screen. It doesn't feel fake. Like it feels very real and visceral. Um, whereas, you know, I can watch some of these Marvel movies or the, you know, the new star Wars movies sometimes, but like you, you, sometimes you just get overwhelmed by all the shit that's on the screen at one time, all the different special effects and explosions and, and fucking people shooting energy beams at each other and aliens and spaceships and all this stuff, it gets to feel not real. Um, So for me, part of it, like T2 is a specific example. It just feels real. It feels like a real kind of lived in universe. Uh, All the the special effects that are there and there are amazing special effects. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's not so over the top. It's not like all on screen at the same time. It's kind of parsed out very slowly. Uh, So that's a big part of it. Just the way that the movies look. I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, Another thing, too, and I think we've touched on a little bit of this stuff, but um, a lot of like big blockbuster action movies now, they can be violent, but it's all very bloodless and very cartoonish, like the like the Fast and Furious movies, for instance, like they, they can be fun to watch but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like there's any stakes really. It feels, yeah, it feels very like comic booky, very cartoonish, very bloodless. Um, but you see, watch T2 and it doesn't hold back on anything. It's really visceral. It's scary. There's fucking, you know, uh, there's the squibs like, even though in those like, you know, the, uh, in gunfights in the, in movies that you don't see anymore where like, it feels like there's like stakes and it feels like there's danger happening. Um, So that's a big part of it as well. And like I said, I was a kid when I watched these movies and there's, there's many ways that it's kind of geared towards kids, but it doesn't hold back on anything. It doesn't hold back on the, the language or the, the, the visual effects or the, the kind of scary shit that's there. Um, it doesn't hold anyone's hand, you know, it's like, it still feels very visceral and very, very scary and very real. So that's, I think a big part of it. Uh, I, I can, I can go to a, a big blockbuster movie now One of the Marvel movies. I usually enjoy it. Um, but it just, it feels like it's produced by an AI. Like it just feels like it's kind of spat out by a computer program, uh, very paint by numbers. Um, but we have these early James Cameron movies or some of the, like, you know, for like predator or total recall, the other movies that I'm talking about. Uh, it just feels very lived in. Uh, it feels like it's made by like artists and people that were kind of trying to like, uh, create something really cool. And I feel like some of that has been lost. Um, Or like, you know, talking about the R rating and stuff like that. Now, now when a movie comes out that kind of embraces that, like Deadpool was an example still, it still felt very schlocky and very like, you know, we're doing this just to be edgy and like, Oh, look at the blood and the, and the swearing and stuff. But a movie like T2, it's just, that was how they made blockbuster movies. It didn't, didn't try to hold anyone's hand. It wasn't meant to, you know, you're not trying to fit as many age groups in there as possible, uh, and that I think comes across, and it feels just authentic in a way that that blockbuster movies now don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I it's interesting how neatly your analysis there matches up with what other people have said, and like I I tend to agree. Like we all, what's funny is a lot of people, a lot of informed viewers were, you know, I don't work in film certainly, but a lot of like just those of us who care about these things, like we all seem to agree with what the problems are, and yet. Uh, we're being fed CGI that we know is not going to age very well. One of my hopes that is probably a pipe dream. I really wish that some studio would would decide that their way to compete would be to make. And also, this makes sense in the nostalgia industry because, like, nostalgia is its own huge part of the culture culture industry now. Like, like, why not if why not harness the power of nostalgia and be like, hey, we're going to make a practical effects blockbuster. <laughs> like, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna well, run it's true. Back It just seems T-T1. like T one
1: there. Yeah. There's no like middle ground anymore between making like tiny independent movies and big, like it's either no budget at all or it's $200 million. And then once your budget is $200 million, like you have to spend that somewhere. Uh, so there's no studios making like, let's take 30 million to make a a big action movie or something, or, you know, everything has to be so big because then you have to justify to, to big that, do that big ad campaign and to bring in as much as possible and the sort of economics, I think, are driving everything where, where no one's really just thinking like, let's take a substantial amount to make or something really cool. But that doesn't have to it doesn't have to like land in the top 10 most uh, 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 highest earning movies of all time in order to justify our investment in this. Uh, that middle ground is kind of being like uh, decimated. It doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it. It's just that their studios just are not making movies like this.
0: I mean, I feel like if you wanted to make this movie, particularly if you wanted to make the original Terminator in 2019, you'd have to do it in like Indonesia or something. Like you probably could make it maybe with like the, there were, there might be able to blow, we might not be able to blow up as much stuff, but like, there's a lot of this that you could probably pull off in, um, developing world film industries. I think interestingly enough, and that's where the, the great action movies are coming from now. Right. Like, (laughs) yeah, for sure. Definitely.
1: Um,
0: yeah. So I think we're probably, you know, I'm sure we could talk about this all day, but like we're probably at a pretty good point here where I, I think we've gone over Terminator pretty thoroughly. And I want to ask you um, anything you want to plug to our listeners.
1: Yeah. Um, well, if you don't uh, follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Rob Rousseau. I also host a podcast called 49th Parahel, kind of like a, a political podcast news thing. I talk about American politics and Canadian politics, a lot of cool guests and everything like that. So you can find that on all the podcast apps and Twitter as well.
0: Cool. So check out Rob's podcast, check out his tweets. He does a lot of good dunks on deserving people. Um, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Uh, Well, cool, man. Um, Thanks for joining us. And, you know, I bet there's a pretty good chance if you're interested. Well, if you're interested, we'd love to have you back to discuss more Arnold Schwarzenegger. I have no doubt.
1: Well, yeah, I would be happy to. As you can tell, I get get very excited to talk about this. So I'm I'm happy to to come back anytime, man.
0: Well, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Uh, Take care. That was fun.
1: Yeah. Take care, man. Thanks.